please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Eight to ten-year-olds are dismissed. If you're visiting and have an eight to ten-year-old, they are welcome to go into the eight to ten-year-old class and hear a lesson prepared for them where they can sit with you. Either way is fine. Uh, to all the visitors, some from in town, some from out of town, welcome. We're glad that you're here. If there's anything that I say in the next 45 minutes or so, or anything that we've sung, or anything that's come up in your mind that you have questions about, you can always call us and we can try to clarify and be of help to you. We're just glad that you'd be here. We believe that the Bible is the true revelation given from God to man, and so our practice in this church is to go through it book by book to understand what God has said. And um, I think I speak for the rest of the people in this church, it is an absolute joy to have the Scriptures and to understand what God says. So 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 34 is our passage. We're going through this study of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's not often that there's a resurrection passage that kind of falls in line on the calendar on uh, the Lord's Day. Uh, sometimes I'm going through a book of the Bible and there's not a resurrection passage on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, but today, lo and behold, there is one. It's like hitting the lottery for a preacher. So... <laughs> This is exciting. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the chapter that talks about the resurrection of the dead. And as, as I told you last week, it's not first and foremost about Christ's resurrection from the dead. It starts off that way. But the argument is since Christ rose from the dead, believer, so will you. Literal, physical resurrection of the dead coming for believers. And that's the theme of the chapter. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 34. That's the section that I'll go through and explain this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 34. After he's just talked about what would be true if Christ did not rise from the dead, he then says this in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to, the, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Because he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, 
and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I've entitled this message, Responding to God's Plan for History. Responding to God's Plan for History. History is a tough subject. History is when we go and tell a story, recount what's happened in the past. What makes history tough is the biases that we read into history sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to understand what really happened, what didn't happen, because people read the same thing from different perspectives. You can see this even in newspaper headlines from the past. I looked at some headlines from March 2003, and one newspaper said, Iraq forces suspension of U.S. surveillance flights. Iraq forces suspension of U.S. surveillance flights. Same day, another newspaper, U.S. withdraws U-2 planes. So did Iraq cause it or did the U.S. just determine to stop? Again, a report from two different perspectives about something they have in common, about something that happened. In this passage here, God's view of history is put on display. We might have our views of history. Here's what happened then and here's why it happened. But in this passage, I don't know if you saw that, that God goes back from Adam and he goes all the way to the future when death will be destroyed. He kind of gives the, the plan of human history. So it's not just his perspective on human history that we see in this passage. It's actually his plan that's detailed in human history. So I think in a day and age where we're trying to understand history rightly, it'd be good for us for 45 minutes or so to look at God's perspective on human history. And not just his perspective, but his plan for it. What has happened, what's going to happen. And in this passage, that reality is condensed into just a few, a few verses. So the main point of this passage is that God's plan for history encourages Christians about the future, and God's plan for history also challenges Christians in the present. All right, so those will be our two points for the day. I'll repeat them as we go, but here's the proposition. How God's plan for history is to encourage and challenge Christians. How God's plan for human history is to encourage and challenge Christians. The first section gives us the encouragement the encouragement. Here it is. We will be, future, we will be alive with Christ, physically resurrected with Christ. These bodies that we have will die, go into the grave, and one day we will have new resurrected bodies with Christ. That's what this passage is teaching in verses 20 to 28. So, the arc of human history ends with Christ and his followers being victorious. That's what it says in these verses 20 to 28. Let's look at them. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The firstfruits. The, the, in the springtime or at harvest time, it's the first of the fruits that come on the tree, come on the plant, you gather them, and those first fruits aren't just something you gather and enjoy. They're also a guarantee that something's coming later. So there's first fruits, but there's, then there's going to be some fruits that come later. That's how Paul refers to the resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. He rose from the dead. 
And so earlier when I, wrote, when I read from Luke 23, we hear the account of him rising from the dead, being raised by God the Father. And what you're supposed to expect there, based on what Paul is saying, is that our resurrection will then follow at one time. So the first fruits are a guarantee of what's going to happen next. And notice, Paul has in mind here the resurrection of the dead in Christ. There are other places in the Bible that talk about those who've rebelled against God, who do not submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, do not trust Him as Savior. It talks about their resurrection and their eternal punishment. That, that, does, that is taught in different places in the Bible. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is concerned to talk to believers about their future resurrection. One way we know that is because at the end of verse 20, it says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a term given to Christians who die. Sleep is temporal, right? You go to sleep at night, you wake up in the morning. So that's, what, that's how Christian death is spoken of, those who fall asleep. The, the implication is, or the understanding is, they will then wake up. All right, so this is a passage about a Christian's future resurrection with Christ. Verse 21, now he tells the story of human history, and he starts with Adam. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So we know that our first parents, all of us, were Adam and Eve. We all come from one set of parents. And those parents sinned, rebelled against God. And just like you got your blue eyes from mom and your, you know, personality from dad, we got our sin from mom and dad. Okay, so that's what the Bible teaches. Here, Paul's summarizing that. He's saying, for as by a man came death, so we, re- we receive the sin from Adam and the consequences for sin, death. But God has seen to it that by a man, another person coming later, would come the resurrection of the dead. Now, now doesn't that communicate something beautiful about God? When people rebel against God, He will bring justice. But God's also merciful. So he could have ended and said, oh, you've sinned just like your father did. I'm done with you. But he also brings a way of salvation. Another man, a different man. This man doesn't bring death. This man brings life. And that's Jesus Christ. And we see that in his literal overcoming of death from the grave. For as by a man came death, verse 21, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. It's going to happen. But each in its its own order. Now he talks about the order of how we are made alive. First, Christ rises from the dead. Then there's a period of years, so far 2,000 years. And at some point, Christ returns and raises the dead in Christ, raises those who are his followers. So again, Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, his second coming, when he returns again, those who belong to Christ will rise from the dead. So one of the things that will happen at the second coming of Christ will be that the, those who are in Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, will rise from the dead. That order is significant. That word order in verse 23 speaks of uh, military order. It's a military term. Here's what you're supposed to picture. Picture a captain, and there's a day where he's supposed to wake up and lead his troops into battle. So he wakes up first, begins preparing, and a little bit later, 
the soldiers under him. Okay, so there's an order. The captain first, and then the soldiers wake up after him. That's what Paul's getting at. Now, in verses 24 to 28, there is a lot here. Have you ever thought you were drinking orange juice, but you were drinking orange juice concentrate? Whoa, that's a lot. I give you verses 24 to 28. There's a lot here. Okay, I'll do my best to condense it, explain it to you. If you have questions beyond that, please ask me later. Okay, but let me summarize it here before I then go through and explain it. Here's the summary, and I'll read this at the end too, just so we have it in our heads. In the purposes of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth to defeat all who had with the devil rebelled against the Father. He also came to win those enslaved by Satan. He will one day finally defeat God's enemies and present us to the Father while willingly submitting Himself to the Father. That's all in the next five verses. Okay, so I'm going to go through, walk through those, and then again, give you that summary at the end, and hopefully you can begin to grasp this reality. Verse 24, so Christ comes, He's raised from the dead, He then comes at a time later, raises the dead in Christ, okay? Verse 24, then comes the end. Here's the end of human history. When He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So after the resurrection of those who belong to Christ in the future, all enemies, spiritual and human, will be destroyed. So one day Christ will raise His own and all of His enemies will be destroyed and He'll take the kingdom, all those who worship the Father, all those who love the Father, and give it to the Father, hand it over to the Father. You can see more of the detail of this at the end of Revelation 19 and 20 if you want to go there later on, okay? Now verse 25, because He, Christ, must reign until He, God the Father, has put all enemies under His feet. So Christ reigns and God the Father will put all enemies under His feet, all those who oppose Christ's rule, all those who hate Christ, all those who go astray from Him, do not want Him, God the Father is going to put all of them in subjection to Him. They, they will be the losers. He will be the victor. Now, this is something the Old Testament prophesied. Every, every Israelite king who would defeat enemies, they would think of themselves as the victors and their enemies would be under their feet. That wasn't just something unique to Israel. All enemies in the ancient Near East or all kings in the ancient Near East thought like that. The enemies were the footstool. They were under you because you defeated them. There's a psalm, Psalm 110, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So the understanding is that there's going to be a king. God's going to put a king in place, and all chaos and rebellion against God will be put under this king. The king will have the final defeat, the final victory, and all opponents will be subjected to him. They will lose, again, he will win. And so when Jesus comes and lives his perfect life and dies for sinners and then overcomes the grave, is raised by God the Father and ascends to heaven, the Bible speaks of Jesus ascending to heaven after doing all that work, doing all, all that victorious work as being the king sitting on the throne. 
and the rest of human history is his enemies being gathered underneath him. He must reign until God has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, after all that happens, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Bible teaches that there is going to be a day when death ends. All of us have lost people that we love. All of us have gone to too many funerals. We're tired of it. We're tired of the school shootings. We're tired of the car accidents. We're tired of the cancer. We're tired of the ominous doctor's appointments. We're tired of it all. And the Bible teaches that one day death will be no more because Christ will come and destroy it. Death comes because of sin, because of our rebellion. And God said, when you rebel against me, it will not lead you to life. It will lead you to death. But I, the merciful one, will send my son to do something about that. We'll bring an end to it. And this passage tells us the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. There will be a day when death is no more. Revelation 21 actually gives this beautiful picture of God wiping tears from his people's eyes. Death is no more. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. God the Father has put all things in subjection under his son's feet. He's seen to it that his son is the victor. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God himself, God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under his feet. So God the Father sees to it that Christ's enemies are defeated, and all things are under the rule of Christ. Of course, except God the Father. God the Father is not under the rule of His Son. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. Okay, so the Son conquers all. The Father's seen to it that the Son conquers all. Everything is under the authority of the Son, Jesus Christ, except God the Father. So, God the Son rules over all, except, of course, God the Father. Then the Son, the ruler of everything, will one day take all this kingdom, all of His people, all of those who are loved by the Father, loved by the Son, and will give them back to God the Father as a loved gift. And God the Son Himself will be subjected to God the Father. He will willingly submit himself to the leadership, the rule of God the Father. And then verse 28 ends, so that God may be all in all. What does that mean? So that God's rule would be over everything and everything would be rightly related in joy to God the Father. Maybe you've used the term before, uh, oh, that's a godless house or that's a godless city, or that's a godless country, or whatever it may be. You could stop using that term at this point. Nothing will be godless. Nothing will respond wrongly to God the Father and His rule. So a lot in those five verses. But let me recap again with that summary I gave you at the beginning, and maybe it'll ring all the more true since we've just gone through it. In the purposes of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the purposes of the Trinity, the Son came to earth to defeat all who had, with the devil, rebelled against the Father. The Son came to defeat the enemies of the Father. He also came 
to win those enslaved by Satan. That's me. Born into sin under Adam, enslaved by Satan, the Son came to win and rescue people like me, people like you. That's why the Bible says He redeemed us, bought us back. Again, so in the purposes of the Trinity, the Son came to earth to defeat all who had with the devil rebelled against the Father. He also came to win those enslaved by Satan. He will one day finally defeat God's enemies and present us to the Father while willingly submitting Himself to the Father. You know, when you talk about Christian salvation, sometimes people think to be saved or to be a Christian means that you won't go to hell. And there's truth in that. But salvation is much bigger than that. Think of it this way. When Jesus was praying just before he died, he referred to all that the Father had given to him. That's God's people. That's you if you're a Christian. Father, I've done the work. I've won. I've done the victory for all the people that you've given to me. So picture a father giving his son, the groom, a gift. What's the gift? It's his redeemed. It's us. We are a love gift between the father to the son, from the father to the son. And and Jesus says that right before he dies for people. He says, I've done the work. I've kept them. I've kept the ones that you've given to me. We're an object of love, again, from the father to the son. Here, at the end of human history, when all the enemies are gone, Christ will take the ones He loves, the ones He died for us, and in some way, and again, we'll have physical bodies, we'll be resurrected, we will see this and know this. The Son will gather His people and say, Father, we are Yours. Love gift, now from the Son to the Father. So the Father has given the Son this people who He's died for, who He loves, who He saves, who He redeems. And in the future in human history, when all enemies are gone, the Son will say, Father, they are yours. Be over us. Rule with us. Reign with us. Love us. Care for us. For all eternity, no more death. That's salvation. We are wrapped up in love between the Father and the Son, the Son and the Father. Salvation isn't just kind of a transaction. You were sinful, now you are forgiven and changed, done, stamp, okay, enjoy things, go ahead. No, no. Salvation is wrapped in the love of the Father and the Son. You could say this, why did God create the earth? Please don't ever say because He was lonely. Please never, ever say that. Fail, wrong, no, no, no. God is never lacking okay? He's all-sufficient. He has everything he needs in and of himself. He didn't create the earth because he was lonely. He created the earth to share his love. He is that loving. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father, and so they create to share that love with their people, with their creation. Oh, but the people rebel. We don't want your ways. We don't want what you say, but God still loves and sends his Son to redeem them, to win them, he says, son, I'm giving you a people. I'm giving you a people. That at the end of human history, when all those who will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ will not receive his salvation, then at the end, when those are all defeated, the son takes that group and says, Father, they're yours. Care for them, love them for all eternity, without rebellion, without death. 
How does that help us today? Well, the temptation is to go to church, go eat, go home, flip on the cable news again, and be discouraged about the state of the world. And the temptation is for Christians to be pessimistic about the future. You can't be pessimistic about the future with this before you. God will be all in all. He will, through His Son, destroy death, bring us all home, and rule with us in paradise, live with us in paradise, dwell with us in paradise. This is what the future holds. It's okay to mourn for the state of the world. It's okay to see abused children and to mourn and to long for an end to that. It's okay to see people abusing their authority and using the people under them instead of serving them and caring for them and loving them. It's okay to see corrupt politicians abuse the poor and mismanage resources. It's okay to see all that and to mourn, but don't become pessimistic about the future. Christians can't do that. We know why these things are happening right now, because God's patient. He could judge, bring an end to it, but He's patient, desiring all to come to repentance. That's why things are the way they are right now, because we keep going our way as a human society. We keep sinning, rebelling against Him, and what does that lead to? Not life, but death. But He calls His people to spread the the message of forgiveness and life evermore through His Son. So right now, we're in that spiritual battle. We're in that spiritual war. We're trying to bring light to darkness. And in the future, there will only be light. He will take care of all the darkness. So it's okay to mourn for the state of the world, but do not become pessimistic about the state of the world, okay? Christians should be the most optimistic people on the planet. This is my Father's world Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let the earth be glad. I think it's important just to highlight before moving on to the second point. There are two groups of people in these first nine verses. There are those who belong to Christ, verse 23, and there are those in verse 25 called his enemies two groups of people in the world, and it's not Republican and Democrat, okay? It's not 49er fan, Raider fan. It's not people who like the city, people who like the country. No, no, no. The two defining groups in the world are those who belong to Christ and those who rebel against Him. That's simply what the Bible says. So, I think I would be wrong to not point that out to all of us today. But here's the good news. We just read earlier that death came through Adam, sin came through Adam. So no one here should feel singled out as an enemy of Christ because guess what? We are all born enemies of God. We do not want His ways. We do not want to follow His rules that are for our good. We do not want them. But a Christian is one who admits their rebellion against God and who sees His generosity, His mercy his grace, his offer of salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, and says, I believe that Jesus came to die for my sins and that he will one day raise me up with him. I believe that. I stake my eternity on that. I stake my eternity on the fact that God is merciful to sinners. And for the one that stakes their eternity on the fact that God is merciful to sinners, 
and embraces Christ as that gift, God makes them his own, those who belong to Christ. What a great invitation. If you are currently an enemy of God, have not wanted his ways, have rebelled against him, you don't have to clean yourself up. Please do not try to do that because perfection is required for heaven. Don't try to do better. Simply say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's exactly the type of person Christ came to save. You can have life today in Jesus Christ. But seeing this plan of human history, starting with Adam, ending with Christ, ruling and reigning, handing us over to God the Father who will rule and reign, seeing this plan for human history should encourage Christians. We know what the future holds. But this plan also challenges Christians today, and that's in verses 29 to 34. Here's the challenge. We are to live purposefully for Christ. If I can say it in a nutshell, Jesus rose from the dead. So what? Does that change Monday? Does that change our priorities? Does that change our focus? Paul thinks that it should. And we know that Paul is writing being inspired by God himself. So God thinks that the resurrection in the past and the future resurrection that we will have should change our present. And you see that in verses 29 to 34. Paul desires the Corinthians to live like there is actually a resurrection of the dead. Now he says in verse 29, if there isn't a future hope of resurrection... Why be baptized? And we come to one of the most difficult passages to understand in all of the Bible. Verse 29. If there's no future hope, if there's no future resurrection, why be baptized? Verse 29 says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? There are literally dozens of interpretations about this. Now, as you know, only one's correct, but there are a lot of opinions out there, and you can buy a lot of commentaries and read a lot of opinions. I happen to take one that the early church fathers held. I think that's a pretty good one to take, most likely, most often. What did the early church believe that this was saying? All right, so I'll give you that interpretation and explain what it means, okay? It means that when early Christians, and and we do this too, when early Christians thought about their bodies, their lives before being Christ, so, so their lives before they came to Christ, their lives of sin, they thought of their bodies as dead, The Bible constantly speaks of those apart from God as dead, as dying. So Christians thought of themselves, even their own bodies, as dead. And so when they were baptized, they would go underwater, which pictured what? Burial, death. Their bodies, their old bodies are going down in burial, and their new bodies come up again in life. That's what baptism has always represented, always portrayed, always been a symbol of. The old person, the old man, the old woman going down in the grave, dead to sin, and the new one coming out being alive. And so, the interpretation of early Christian history, and 
happens to be mine as well, is that baptism for the dead was when we baptized our dead bodies and came out in newness of life. It's a symbol of that. Here are a couple other reasons I think it's an appropriate interpretation. It fits with Paul's theology elsewhere. Paul refers to the old body, the old us as dead, the old us as dead bodies. In Romans 8.10, it says the body is dead because of sin. So Paul regularly speaks of our lives before Christ as those of being dead bodies. Our lives are dead. Again, it fits the unanimous view of the early church fathers. Third, it fits the context. And there's a good way to interpret the Bible rightly. What has his argument been leading up, and does this interpretation fit that? And yes, it does. This fits the context. When you view your body of sin as dead and then are baptized, what happens next? Resurrection. So baptism itself shows an expectation of life. So he's saying this, listen, if Christ has been raised from the dead and he's one day going to rule and life is going to be what fills this planet, eternal life, no more death, you can see that in Christian baptism. There's a hope we have. Now, if that wasn't true, if Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, why are people baptized? Why do they bring their dead bodies of sin and baptize them? There's an expectation in baptism that you come out of the water, right? So if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, why go through baptism? What are you doing in the second part of baptism? You're coming out of the water and you expect life. Of course you do. Christ rose from the dead. So if you think, well, I don't know if there's really a resurrection of the dead, but I want to be baptized. Okay, then we'll just hold you under. Hold you under. Is he going to let him up? Nope. He doesn't think there's a resurrection of the dead. You're loved and dismissed. Stay down there, Frank. (laughs) Why do we bring people out? Because there's life coming. Okay, we've got a new life in Christ. There's more life coming. So that's what Paul's saying. If there isn't a future hope of resurrection, why are people baptized? Why do people submerge their dead bodies and show the symbol of them being raised up again with Christ, all right? But there's another question here, verses 30 and following. If there isn't a future hope of resurrection, why take risks for the gospel? If there isn't a future hope of resurrection or a future reality of resurrection, why take risks for the gospel? Put it this way. If you are not going to rise from the dead, why take risks that could kill you? Why not just kind of sit in a bubble and hope nothing bad happens? Verse 30, Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? Why do I live in a way that constantly puts myself in danger, Paul says to the Corinthians? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What's he saying there? He's saying, I risk my life every single day to bring a message of hope to people. I've done that with you, Corinthians. I take pride in that. I happily give my life over 
so that you would understand that life is found in Jesus Christ. Why would I do that if there wasn't a resurrection of the dead? Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Why would I put myself in harm's way if there wasn't a resurrection of the dead? And beasts, Paul often, or not often, but Paul has referred to beasts in a couple of places. In 2 Timothy, he, refused, he, he, he talks about being rescued from the lion's mouth, and he's talking about people who opposed him. So this is most likely not actual beasts, but people who were angry, persecuted him, who, who attacked him. So, so why would I put my life in the mouths of these wild beasts if there wasn't a resurrection of the dead? The Old Testament often speaks of the opponents of God as beasts. So Paul just picking up on that language. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, then... Let us eat, drink, eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. So if the dead are not raised, why in the world would I do risky things for the sake of telling people the gospel? If the dead aren't raised, then here's how you live. Let's party, because tomorrow is the end. You can see Paul showing the folly of that. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, quoting a common saying of the day. And then Paul says this to Christians, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, he's not just talking about bad stuff in general. In the context of this, he's saying, Christian who has a hope in the resurrection of the dead don't live like the rest of the world that's just partying because there's no tomorrow. Don't be fooled, Christian. Live purposefully. Don't just eat and drink and be merry and then say, well, tomorrow I'm dead, it's gone. No, Christ has been raised from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. So live purposefully. Do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. Don't be deceived. And here's the thing about deception. When you're being deceived, you don't know it, right? I mean, pretty simple to explain, right? Oh, I'm not being deceived. How do you know? Sometimes we need someone outside of us to tell us, hey, be careful of being deceived. Well, Paul's doing that this morning. Don't be deceived. Since you will rise from the dead, live purposefully. Use your life for eternal purposes. Don't just view death as the end, no more, so let's just party. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. We know that in the days that 1 Corinthians was written, there were feasts in the idols' temples. We rehearsed this. We've gone through this before. And Christians would even sometimes continue going to them for social purposes, not wanting to be ostracized from their family and friends. They would go and they would engage in what everyone at the feasts were engaging in. They would get drunk. They would engage in sexual immorality with prostitutes. They would do all of that. So we know that that was happening with some Christians who didn't understand yet how to say no to things like that. So he says here, wake up from your drunken stupor. This is not the way people who hope in the resurrection live anymore. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on sinning 
for some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. If you continue in revelry and partying and drunkenness as a believer, you're not indicating that you know God, God or His plan for history, His plan for the future. And Paul says, I say this to your shame. So stop sinning, the partying, the drunkenness, the immorality. Some don't know God or His plans and therefore continue to live an aimless life. I say this to your shame. Paul's saying this to Christians who need to hear about an aimless life. If we will rise from the dead and rule and reign with God, and if He is doing things now on the earth to bring people to Himself for His kingdom in the future, we can't just sit back and live aimless lives. The challenge is we are to live purposefully for Christ. 23 years ago, a pastor named John Piper preached at a youth conference that was outside on a farm in Tennessee. 40,000 young people were there. It was a rainy and windy day. It's become one of the most famous sermons in the last hundred years. His sermon, you can see it on YouTube, to 40,000 students was given just three weeks after two missionaries who were supported by his church had died. Three weeks after two missionaries from their church died in an auto accident. Piper says this to the young people amassed there, and it's become a famous section even of that famous sermon. Listen to this. Three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over the cliff and they were both killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw away their lives on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest, February 1998, what tragedy is. And then he quotes the Reader's Digest article. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. And then Piper says, the American dream, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work before you give an account to your creator be, I collected shells. See my shells? That is a tragedy. 
And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. Don't waste your life. It is so short and so precious. He said, I grew up in a home where my father spent himself as an evangelist to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. He had one consuming vision, preach the gospel. There was a plaque in our kitchen from my growing up years. Now it hangs in our living room. I've looked at it almost daily for about 48 years. It says, only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. John Piper is not anti-joy or enjoying this life. But when enjoying this life alone becomes the sole focus as a Christian, there's something that we're missing, being deceived. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. All around us are people dying in their sin. So if we simply make our priorities us getting the most out of this world, we are being deceived. So Christian, don't be deceived. Spending hours coveting other homes, vehicles, vacations, clothes, all while spiritually helping others gets the crumbs of your time, if time at all. Don't be deceived. Constantly bemoaning the state of the world while failing to do the work that brings people home to God in the next world. Don't be deceived. One of Satan's great tactics is to keep you preoccupied with good and bad things so that you will neglect the main thing, your soul and the souls of people around you. Don't be deceived. Nothing wrong with enjoying life, but if you make the aim of your life enjoying this life alone, you're being deceived. For as the resurrection of Christ means something for our time, it means something for those we come in contact with. It means something. Paul himself, why would I risk my life to get the gospel to places? Why would I spend my time doing this if the dead are not raised? But the dead are raised. There is a future kingdom, a future hope. I'll remind you of the end of this whole section on resurrection. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, listen, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So God's plan for the future is meant to encourage us. It's also meant to challenge us as to what we're doing in serving Him. I love being a pastor of this church. One of the reasons is because I love seeing the purposefulness of those of you who are seeking to serve him. This church is full of retirees who aim to glorify God, who aim to encourage people, who aim to see people one to Christ. You spend your time doing that. You spend your prayers doing that. You join in and work with one another to bring light to this world. It's a joy to see. Young people, there are some young people in this church that work that way, work to serve others, work to teach others about Christ, to, to show others 
hope in him. That's encouraging to see. So for anybody who's simply daydreaming about the next house, vacation, place in the corporate ladder, whatever it be, make sure that those things don't have a hold on you. Live for Christ. Do things that will reverberate into eternity. Why? Because the dead will be raised and the future is secure and your labor will not be in vain. Make deposits for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder of the resurrection of Christ isn't just some cute thing that happened 2,000 years ago. It means something for our lives. It's the message of hope that the world needs. So, Father, use us to make known the message of hope. I'm asking you, Father, to let those who know us know that our hope is in future life, future life in your kingdom. It's not in the things of this world. We do have a different perspective. And that's what the world needs. So, Father, allow us to preach the gospel of Christ, to proclaim his life. We pray right now, we pray that that would have an effect on those that we love around us who need hope. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.